Welcome to Suiting Up Varsity, a podcast dedicated to the sound of the band, the smell of popcorn, the feel of an old letter jacket, and the sight of teenagers hoisting trophies above their heads, and most of all, to the grand history and fantastic stories of Nebraska prep sports. Join us as we look back in time into the great moments from a century plus of Nebraska high school athletics. For our second trip back into the history of uh, Nebraska high school sports, uh, we're going to time travel again. We're going to head back more than 60 years this time to an old concrete stadium north of downtown Omaha, just northeast of the cathedral on the Creighton University campus. It is November 10th, 1945. It has been just two months since atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki brought an end to World War II. We are on the sidelines for a football game that wasn't on anyone's schedule when the season started a couple months ago. This game is an in-season edition of the type that would not be allowed under modern rules, a late-season test for a small Western school that is undefeated but considered unproven. Omaha World Herald prep writer Greg McBride even played a role in setting up this unusual showdown. On the visiting sideline, wearing cardinal pants and white jerseys, are McBride's number 10 team in his latest rankings, the Gothenburg Swedes, and their coach, Wilbur Dutch Zorn. They are 7-0 and have allowed only two touchdowns all season. Last week's 51-0 drubbing of Cambridge was their fifth shutout of the year. But wins over Curtis, North Platte, Holdridge, Callaway, Kozad, and Gibbon haven't been enough to really put them in the running for the mythical state football championship. Tonight's game is designed to answer the questions about this Western squad. The home team, in blue and white, is the Creighton Prep Junior Jays. Prep is McBride's number one team, at 5-1 and one, and on its way to winning the Omaha Intercity League Championship. That makes Prep the perfect opponent to test the Western upstarts. The Omaha Wise Boys, as the World Herald writer Maurice Shaddle calls them, expect the big city squad to have an easy time of it. Earlier in the week, one radio commentator in the River City predicted a 40-point Prep win. As we join the action, though, the scoreboard reads 20-20. to 20. With just seven minutes left in the game and the Junior Jays are lining up for an extra point to take the lead and calm the nerves of those wise boys who have found their thoughts on the balance of power in high school football sorely tested throughout this night. The kick is good, and Prep has its first lead since the first quarter, and the Swedes have their backs against the wall. What we've just witnessed was the culmination of a Junior J comeback that began with Gothenburg leading 20-7 early in the third quarter. Junior quarterback Don Leahy led the prep T-formation offense down the field for both scores and added the extra points himself, the last TD coming on an eight-yard pass to Tom Hanrahan. For most of the drive, Leahy was calling the number of backup fullback Jerry McGlynn. Backups are rare in these days of single platoon football. Prep will play just 15 boys in the game. The Swedes, just 13. Leahy's name should be familiar to the modern fan. He will return to Prep as head football coach in 1952, staying for 20 years and claiming eight state titles. Moving into administration, he will be a force in Omaha sports for decades. As the Nebraska-Omaha athletic director, he will lead the Mavericks from the NAIA to the NCAA in the 1970s and then return in the 1990s to start the hockey program and begin the UNO move toward Division I big-time athletics. In between, he is the Creighton AD who reignites the fire in the Blue Jay basketball program that leads to multiple March Madness runs. 
On this chilly night, when America is still trying to find its post-war footing, it looks like Leahy will play the hero in front of the 2,000 fans scattered in the 20,000-seat Creighton Stadium. That stadium is used only for high school games now. The university's football team was disbanded after the 1942 season as part of the war effort and will never be reassembled. The stadium itself will eventually be raised to make way for research and academic facilities. Let's take a quick time out to talk about sponsorship. If you or your business are interested in becoming a sponsor and partner of Suiting Up Varsity, contact us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash suitingupvarsity, or direct message us on Twitter, at suitupvarsity. We offer a great chance to reach out specifically to Nebraska prep sports fans. In the meantime, we'd like to use this time today to promote a great organization, the Nebraska High School Hall of Fame. If you haven't visited the Hall of Fame's new facility in the NSAA building north of Haymarket Park in Lincoln, it's time to put that on your schedule. My son and daughter uh, and I spent a terrific day at the Hall of Fame this summer. My daughter, age 10, loved the interactive basketball shooting game. She played and played, while my son and I got a first-class guided tour by the curators. The artifacts and collections are terrific, but it is the interactive computer displays and audio-visual elements that make this historical experience special. Hours are limited, right now just Wednesday and Friday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and we were told to call ahead and make sure they're open, but it is well worth that call and well worth a special trip to Lincoln. I'm planning on returning this Friday, September 9, 2016, at 4 p.m. for a special event at the Hall of Fame. Coach Tom Osborne, Heisman Trophy winner Eric Crouch, and softball legend Peaches James will be signing autographs in the Hall. That would be a great time to visit and explore this celebration of Nebraska sports history. I hope to see you there. Now, let's get back to 1946 and Creighton Prep versus Gothenburg. Leahy's opposite this day, Gothenburg's Jim Holmes, now must respond. It was he who led the Swedes to the 13-point lead that had those wise boys having second thoughts. Early in the game, all had looked to form as Prep had taken a 7-0 lead with eight minutes gone uh, on Jack Macbeth's five-yard sweep around end. But then Holmes and his top receiver, Jim Cunning, went to work, striking big with a 48-yard toss and catch to make it 7-6. In the second quarter, Cunning drew multiple defenders to him, and Holmes converted a nine-yard TD throw to Wade Haynes on the other side of the field to make the halftime score 13-7 for the Westerners. Then, lightning struck to start the second half. Prep dropped the ball on its own 30. Holmes responded with a couple runs. He was a dual-threat quarterback, having won 254-yard rushing game to his credit during the year, along with rewriting Gothenburg's passing records, including the single-season mark, which he still Still owns today, 70 years later. And soon, Dick Arnold plunged in to give the Swedes a two-touchdown lead. But now, as we look on, that lead is gone, and the pressure is on as Holmes, Cunning, and the Swedes take the field at their own 32 with just seven minutes left in their dream season. They scatter a few runs in with a big interference call to move the ball to the prep 21 with 90 ticks left on the clock. Cunning heads for the end zone and draws double coverage again. Holmes, this time, goes to him anyway, threading the ball between two Junior J defenders, and Cunnings makes the catch. Gothenburg is back on top, and its perfect season still has life. Prep, though, has one more chance. 
Leahy moves the Jays again, and they are within a long toss of the end zone at game's end. But the junior Jays call a timeout they don't have, and the last seconds escape. Prep makes a desperation snap and pass attempt, but it's clearly after the referee signals the game's end. The ball is caught in the end zone, but the Westerners are already celebrating, and the confused Omaha fans have to resign and tip their hats to Zorn's Swedes and acknowledge that Gothenburg might just have the best claim for this year's mythical state football championship. In these pre-playoff days, the state championship is decided not by a bracket, but by a puzzle. That puzzle will be put together by the prep writers at the Omaha and Lincoln Papers and be debated over coffee all over the state. The Swedes' upset over prep is one of the big final pieces this year in 1945, but this picture started coming together long before, and one big change to the prep landscape that started way back in 1943 played a part in it, the formation of the Nebraska Big Ten Conference. In 1943, North Platte had a fine football team, a loss to Grand Island and a tie to Kearney being the only blemishes on their schedule. But they didn't get the respect from the big city papers they thought they deserved. The newspaper raiders pointed at the Bulldog schedule that included mostly small western schools. The Platters, along with McCook and Kearney, were then members of the Southwest Conference, a conference we still know today that survives with mainly Class C schools. North Platte principal Otto Oaks and coach Charles Tommy Thomas started looking around for solutions to their scheduling dilemma. What they found was that their scheduling worries were shared by many of the other large outstate schools. Quickly, a conference plan was built around two old rivalries, North Platte and McCook in the west and Grand Island and Hastings in the central. Kearney was naturally included as middle ground, and the newspapers announced the imminent creation of the Big Five. But things didn't stop there. Schools with similar concerns to the East and West were soon expressing interests in being included. The idea was also popular with the newspaper hacks around the state, who saw this as a great improvement to high school sports and as a source of more stories for them to write about. Columbus, Norfolk, and Fremont in the east, and Scottsbluff and Alliance in the west all wanted in. Geographically, the conference was suddenly dealing with more mileage than any league in Nebraska, or maybe anywhere else in the country, had ever considered. Scottsbluff coach Bill Putnam began fighting those worries right away, arguing that if the Bluffs and Lincoln High could keep their long-standing football series alive during wartime gas rationing, which they had, uh, that forming a conference like this in peacetime should be a much easier trick. One also shouldn't discount the rampant optimism of the post-World War II era in providing some of the energy it took to put such a grand plan and far-flung conference together. With the Big Five, now the Big Ten, thoughts turned to nuts and bolts scheduling. Early in the process, coaches and administrators were quick to point out that they would not be doing full round-robin scheduling. Of course, it makes sense to not be traveling the 382 miles from Norfolk to Scotts Bluff every football and basketball season. On the other hand, as we will see in later episodes of Suiting Up Varsity, when we look at conferences that fail, scheduling, uh, playing each other, and having guaranteed games every year is the reason you have a conference in the first place. The new league threaded this needle by creating two divisions, East and West. Each division would play round-robin in football and eventually double round-robin in basketball while playing cross-divisional games when it worked for both schools. 
The division winners in football and basketball would meet in league championship games. This format guaranteed a school like North Platte more cachet with the public. A football team in contention for a state title would now have a minimum of five solid games versus Class A competition. They would have the prestige of a conference championship game and the attention of the entire state the week they played that last game. It was a big change from before uh, when even a centrally located school like Columbus had only three games worth versus big schools on its 1944 football schedule. The new Nebraska Big Ten had declared that they were not to be second-class citizens in Class A sports. Basically, those 10 schools had guaranteed that their champion would get serious consideration for the state title from the newspaper men in Omaha and Lincoln every single year. In this fall of 1945, the first Western Division race sorted itself out quickly, with Scottsbluff's high-powered offense running all over their foes and securing a spot in the Thanksgiving Day title game. In the 30s and 40s, Turkey Day high school football was common and a great tradition in some communities. The race on the east side of the Big Ten was more complicated. Hastings took early control with a week three win over rival Grand Island after the Islanders had opened the year by thumping Norfolk 26-6. Then things got tangled around Halloween when Norfolk upset Hastings 19-6. All three would be 3-1 and and the young conference hadn't established tie-breaking procedures. The question of who would face Scott's Bluff in the title game would be left to the league's five-man executive committee of coaches and administrators. Hastings had the best overall record at 8-1, but Grand Island, or maybe a middling Lincoln Northeast team, represented the best win on the Tigers' schedule, and Hastings hadn't played their best football as of late. Tiger coach Roy Bassett was a member of the committee, but recused himself from the vote, and it split 2-2 between GI and Norfolk. With Hastings eliminated, Bassett was able to join the voting again in round two. In a decision that world, the World Herald's Greg McBride would later credit with helping bind the young conference together tighter and lead to its amazing longevity, Bassett chose the arch-rival Islanders, who he knew had been short-injured star lineman Jerry Langley when the Tigers beat them. G.I. would travel west to challenge Scott's Bluff, and the Big Ten would be an important part of Nebraska athletics for 40 years. The Bearcats would be looking to make their state title claim on Thanksgiving, while Grand Island, following a a late drubbing by Lincoln High, would only be playing the spoiler. And it looked like the spoiling might just happen, as they surprised the 9-0-1 bluffs to lead 12-7 in the third quarter. The Bearcats' offense ignited in the second half, though, keyed by running backs Gerald Ferguson and Harry Guzman, striking for big plays, and Scott's Bluff had a 45-12 win and the first-ever Big Ten title, and a pretty solid, solid claim at the number one rating. And we had another piece of our state championship puzzle. Scott's Bluff's lone blemish had come in that traditional cross-state rivalry game with the Lynx of Lincoln High, or Lincoln Central as McBride and the World Herald tried to rename them in the 40s. That early October contest, also played out west, had ended in a 7-7 deadlock. As always, the best team in Lincoln would be another piece in the state title puzzle, and in this era, that always meant the Lynx. 
Now, the modern fan might expect that Lincoln High would be taking a step back at this time. It is, after all, just three years after the opening of the second Lincoln High School, Lincoln Northeast. Today, when Elkhorn South opens, we aren't surprised to see Elkhorn High weaken a little bit. When Millard West opens, it only makes sense to us that some adjustment by Millard North and Millard South would be necessary. We know that when Lincoln North Star and Lincoln Southwest expanded the capital city scene from four schools to six, that the power of the individual schools was lessened. The numbers tell us that. The Lincoln Public Schools had won 10 state championships in boys basketball and football during the decade before 2003 when those new schools started opening. And we know that they have only won one Southeast 2011 football trophy since. So, why isn't the Lincoln High of the 1940s finding itself squeezed by the new interdistrict rival Rockets? Well, there are a couple factors. First, Northeast didn't really take a split of High's students. The Rockets, rather than being a split of Lincoln High, were a consolidation of three suburban schools that were absorbed by LPS as the city grew. The Bethany Bearcats, the Havelock Engineers, and the Jackson Cardinals. So that's different from Papillion La Vista splitting in half and birthing Papillion South. Lincoln High was still about 50% bigger than the new Northeast. That's not the only factor that kept the red and black in their place on the top, though. Nowadays, when school districts spawn a new school, we expect that all the schools in the district will compete in the same scheduling circles and in the same conference. Well, the Rockets and the Lynx were both Class A schools, but there was no move at all to have them play similar schedules or put them in the same conference when Northeast opens it opened its doors in the fall of 1941, or even for decades after that. Northeast basically took Jackson's spot in the Mideast Conference with Hastings, Crete, Beatrice, Fairbury, and York. Jackson had shared the 1941 league basketball crown wearing red and white, and Northeast won that same basketball crown outright the next winter wearing black and white. Across town, Lincoln High continued to compete, as it had since the 1920s, in the multi-state Missouri Valley Conference with Omaha Tech, Omaha Central, Omaha South, Council Bluffs Abraham Lincoln, South uh, Sioux City Central, and Sioux City East. Notice that the three oldest Omaha schools competed here without North and Benson, and that Abe Lincoln competed without Thomas Jefferson. Competing in different athletic circles is one way to maintain a status as a cut above. Even if you are playing head-to-head games, the other games you have access to that your little brother doesn't help you stay ahead. Lincoln High used its Mo Valley membership to keep its status as Lincoln's top dog. Consider this one little fact. In 1938, the Lincoln High Reserve Team is playing in something called the Greater Lincoln Conference with varsity teams from the three schools that will become Northeast and College View, the Southside Suburban School that will eventually grow into Lincoln Southeast by 1955. Lincoln High in the 30s and 40s is just operating at a different level. All that's a long explanation of the fact that the Lynx of this era were always going to be considered a state title contender, and their schedule, loaded with Omaha and Iowa opponents and the long-distance rivalry with Scotts Bluff, and the new crosstown skirmish with the Rockets, would always be considered one of the state's toughest. 
In 45, the Lynx started out the year by dismissing the defending state champion Bearcats of Kearney, and then stepping out of state to beat Sioux City East and St. Joe Central of Missouri. The trip west to Scotts Bluff was only a stumble, as a road tie against a strong club wouldn't take the Lynx out of the hunt in the eyes of the newspaper men back east. That, though, would happen a few weeks later in Omaha against the uh, Trojans of Omaha Tech. The Lynx had survived Omaha South with a 7-6 win, but Tech reversed that score and made High's state title hopes a long shot. Lincoln did still claim the Missouri Valley Championship, so this part of the puzzle still has value. The Omaha component of the state title picture is a little bit more complicated in 1945. Creighton Prep isn't in the Missouri Valley, but was the class of the Inner City League, which included all of the Omaha Public Schools and the two Council Bluffs teams, and is a forerunner of what we call the Modern Metro Conference. That made them a great measuring stick for Gothenburg, and that loss took them out of the conversation. Prep had one other loss, though, to the traditionally toughest piece of the puzzle to make fit, Boys Town. A quick look from our modern perspective would tell us that Boys Town should be an easy pick for the state champ in 1945. When the ratings are ready to come out after Thanksgiving, the West Dodge Boys are 9-0 and have a win over inner city champ prep and a stomping of the Big Ten's North Platte to their credit. But the Boys Town of the 1940s is not a traditional team. Their primary purpose is as a public relations arm for Father Flanagan's mission to rehabilitate troubled boys. The majority of their games are out of state, some in locales like Detroit and Baltimore, against teams difficult to compare and in situations unlike any in the Cornhusker State. And two of those games are still to be played as the rest of Nebraska is starting basketball practice after Thanksgiving and the papers are declaring their champions. All these factors would make the major papers hesitant about where to rank Coach Skip Parlang's crew during this era. The prep game was Boys Town's only real in-state test. Blowouts against North Platte, Nebraska City, Omaha North, and Curtis didn't clear things up much. Mid-season, they traveled to Detroit and beat Central Catholic 14-12 in front of 35,000 fans. That was Game 2 in a series called the Boys Game, which is still played by Detroit schools today. At year's end, they traveled to College Park, Maryland to play two games. They shut out Baltimore Loyola 26-0 in front of 30,000 more fans before losing 9-0 to Washington, D.C.'s Gonzaga High in front of a rain-soaked 10,000. Great events for a great purpose for sure, but not the best way to qualify for the mythical Nebraska State Championship. Maybe we should just set that puzzle piece aside for a moment and see what else we can piece together. With no NSAA football playoff in place, there was actually no classification system in place for football in 1945. McBride and the other scribes would sometimes refer to teams by their basketball classifications and sometimes rate the separate classes, but that wasn't standardized at all. We've already seen Gothenburg, who would be playing Class B basketball in the 1940s, had made its way into the overall state title conversation. Other small schools had great seasons this year, but lacked the big win that the Swedes had versus Prep. Crete, another strong Class B team, finished 7-1, 7-1. 
But that lone loss to Hastings cost the Cardinals the Mideast title and any real serious consideration for the top of the final ratings. The Orange Chanticleers were another B team with just one loss, but that loss to Lex had signaled the end of a winning streak tracing back to 1940. Takema saw a slightly shorter long win streak snapped by Class A Fremont. Valentine was undefeated up north, but tough to judge because of its schedule. In Class C... Two schools that are still open, Harvard and Plainview, were joined in the unbeaten ranks by a couple that aren't, the Genoa Orioles and the Lincoln College View Southsiders, or Viewmen if you prefer. All four were undefeated but had taken a tie on their records. In the ranks of the smallest 11-man teams, Class D, the Guide Rock Warriors from near the Kansas border had the only perfect record. Obviously, no smaller class team except Gothenburg had anything on its resume to get it into the big conversation. In the end, our state championship puzzle was too much, even for the professionals. The Lincoln Papers' Harlan uh, Bidek split the crown three different ways, giving a piece to Boystown, a piece to Gothenburg, and a final slice to Scott's Bluff. McBride took a similar escape route and divided the mythical trophy between Zorns, Swedes, and Parlang's West Dodge Boys. By the way, I've never seen them called the Cowboys in a contemporary 1940s account. History has been more definitive, though, with Gothenburg's triumphant trip to Omaha looking better as we look back. The Nebraska High School Hall of Fame honored the Swedes as their golden anniversary team in 1945, and historian Jerry Mathers named them the lone number one for 1945 in his book, Nebraska High School Sports. That's good enough for me. The All-State teams of 1945 were headed by a pair of explosive backs from the West, Scotts Bluff's Gerald Ferguson and McCook's Leo McKillop. Both were just juniors. Gothenburg's quarterback Holmes and Boys Town's do-everything Ken Morris completed the backfield. Lincoln High was represented by end Ed Donegan, and Prep was honored with guard Jim Pitzinger. Hastings' Cliff Hop was named in one paper. He was the youngest of the four Hop brothers, the Tiger first family of sports, and all four brothers had been named All-State Football. In his history book, Mathers handed the six-man state crown to Odo County's Talmadge and its All-State speedster, Don Vollertson who would letter it track at Nebraska three times. The Bulldogs were unbeaten. But they were far from the only perfect six-man crew in the state. McBride in the World Herald liked Grand Island St. Mary's better with their all-state defensive standout, Robert Bud Mester. McBride felt the Ramblers, who would eventually morph into the GI Central Catholic Crusaders, played a wider, tougher schedule. Mathers never ranked private schools, so I tend to side with McBride here. The other six-man unbeaten teams that year had some nicknames that are great losses to school consolidation. The Platte Center Explorers, the North Loop Challengers, and the Wilbur Wolverines. Yes, Wolverines with an I. Also unbeaten uh, was All-Stater Al Baugh and the Wayne Prep Panthers. Baugh would go on to coach Fremont in the 1961 state title game and win it and serve as the Tigers' longtime athletic director. The FHS basketball court is now named in his honor. 
the Nihaka Indians almost made it through the year undefeated, falling to Bellevue in a Thanksgiving Day matchup. Yes, Bellevue, which is now split into two Class A schools, was playing six-man football in 1945. Football is all there is in the fall that year. State competition in cross country won't begin until 1960. The gymnastics competition was canceled from 1944 to 1946 because of the war. There are, of course, no girls' high school sports in Nebraska in the 1940s. Ever so often, the papers will picture, uh, feature a picture of a young woman playing hockey or scores from women's bowling leagues uh, or even an advertisement for a female pro-wrestling bout. But that that's about it. Most schools of sufficient size in the state did have a girls' athletic association. The GAAs ran intramural competitions for the girls and, once in a while, an interscholastic event, but nothing the newspapers would be bothered with. The girls of 1945 would be, in many cases, the great-grandmothers of the current girl athletes. We've reached the place now where most of the girls competing today have mothers who played sports, or at least had the opportunity to choose not to, and we probably have a few with grandmothers who played, but it won't be long until there are Nebraska athletes who can look in the history books to find their great-grandmother playing in a state tournament or setting a track record. It will be interesting to see how girls' athletics will look when we reach that point. As the athletes of 1945 start winter practices for the winter season of 1946, we'll call it a week. On the next episode, we'll see what they have to offer in the winter season, paying special attention to Nebraska's new super conference, the Big Ten, and how it affects the rest of the mid-40s sports scene. Until next time, this has been Suiting Up Varsity. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at SuitUpVarsity. See us on Facebook at facebook.com slash suitinguparsity. When you get there, you can ask questions about Nebraska high school sports history, leave suggestions for future episodes, or give us your opinions on issues affecting high school sports in 1946 or today. Or you can answer this episode's trivia question. At what Omaha school did legendary Boys Town coach Skip Parlang work the sidelines before joining Father Flanagan's school on West Dodge? We hope to hear from you soon. Also, if you like this podcast, take time to rate us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. It helps others find our show. This has been Suiting Up Varsity, Episode 2, Part 1, written and produced by me, Greg Mays, technical and research assistance by Tate Mays, helpful audio advice and encouragement from Chris Shukai, and as always, dedicated to Jerry Mathers, the godfather of Nebraska high school sports history and the inspiration for this podcast. Suiting Up Varsity is the anchor show of the Nebraska Varsity Network, copyright 2016.